Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 18th episode of 2022, and we're deep into autumn with me, Nicholas Barry Lumblon, and with me, Richard Allen. So we thought we would take a timely topic. Um, there is something interesting happening tomorrow. What is that? That's right. So, so there's a piece of legislation that started out in the European Commission in actually December 2020. That has now finally been signed off, and our understanding is that tomorrow it will appear in the official journal of the EU, which is the point at which it becomes law, and this is called the Digital Services Act. So ah. a piece of legislation that regulates online services. It's got, it's got a, a partner in crime, the Digital Markets Act, uh, that's already gone through, but now tomorrow in the official EU journal is published the Digital Services Act. And tomorrow is the 27th of October, we should say, if you're listening on this and you're confused about the dates. That's, uh, that's, that's on me. Uh, <laughs> so is this, is, is, this, is this like a watershed moment? The European Union has not regulated any of the stuff in here before, or, or is there a history? So, so there's a lot of history. <laughs> so weirdly, this started out as an update to a piece of legislation from 2020 called the e-commerce directive. Uh, 2020, 2000, sorry, yeah, 2000. I'm, yes. I'm out by 20-odd uh, years. Yeah, in, in 2000, <laughs> uh, um, the e-commerce directive came into force, and the e-commerce directive uh, was, a, was part of that sort of early raft of internet legislation. And the idea was to enable the growth of the internet, by harmonizing across the EU obligations in respect of hosting content. And that's sort of the, the core of it. If you were gonna have a business online, a commercial business, or you're gonna host content online, they wanted to create a, a harmonized, and actually quite permissive regime. And they did that, I think, in about 16 or 17 pages of law <laughs> back in the year 2000. And then over the years, there's been lots of criticism saying it's no longer fit for purpose. People have wanted to change it. And that, that head of steam built up until we got to this point in 2020 where they published the Digital Services Act, which does update the e-commerce directive, but does so much more. As we go on to explore it, does so much more, and it does it in now tens and tens of pages. These are sort of 100-page-plus documents that have the legislation, all the explanatory notes and so on. And then if we go back to the year 2000, the year mm -hmm. when the e-commerce directive came into force, I think it's it's kind of interesting to think about the the, the mindset and the motivation behind the e-commerce directive. As you rightly said, it was thought of as an enabling legislation that would make it possible for people to start businesses on the internet without being too worried about the big concept of the day, which is intermediate liability. That's right. And we'll come back to that. And and it wasn't alone. We saw similar legislation in other countries too, like the US. They had something that came into force a little bit earlier called the Common Decency Act, the sex, yes. where Section 230 uh, accomplished a broader, wider version of the same thing, saying that you are not liable for the content on your services uh, on the internet. So there was like this whole sentiment, this whole general legislative will to to make the internet grow and with the internet make the economy grow and start new businesses and make sure that you weren't held back by liability fears. That's the that's the sentiment then. Describe yeah. the sentiment now. Yeah, so, so the sentiment now has shifted to say, uh, uh, well, it, it's sort of shifted in two directions. One is that the internet has become a more central part of our lives. So back then, year 2000, internet businesses were this sort of add-on out there. It was seen as sort of an additive to the economy. All the retailers and the publishers and everybody were going to be absolutely fine. And then there were going to be these newfangled internet businesses, some total of all of this, meaning a bigger economy. So let's 
you know, pass laws like this, these intermediary liability laws and uh, around taxation, often give them free holidays from certain forms of taxation to add this extra stuff onto the economy. What's happened in the intervening period is that internet has moved, or internet services, online services have moved central. And in many cases, they've displaced existing players. Uh, and certainly from an EU perspective, many of these new services are foreign owned. And, and we can't get away, we keep coming back to it, but it's a really important factor. So yeah. in terms of the drive to legislate, so you've moved from this notion of a few sort of uh, small internet players adding to my core economy, which consists of big local conglomerates, to one in which the sense is we've lost control, that now our local conglomerates are suffering, and instead we've got these, in the EU's perspective, these foreign players where all the action is, they're out of control, and so the new legislation, the Digital Services Act, is very squarely about taking control in the sense of being able to dictate in often quite painful detail how these online intermediaries should run their businesses in respect of European users. Mm. So the first iteration wasn't telling you how to run your business. This new one is. It's saying, look, these are the things you must do if you're going to offer your service in Europe. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. But we should pause a moment here and, and recognize what it is that we're saying. So we're essentially saying that the e-commerce directive succeeded. It succeeded, yes. Because a lot of these services grew, the internet grew, it became a central core component in our economies, and the early legislation, the early permissive legislation, really managed to integrate the internet in our economy, or at least not get in the way of that integration. You could argue it could have happened anyway. Yeah. But so that early legislation worked, and legislators are essentially saying, well, you look, we put this in place in order for you to grow, and oh my God, you grew. Yes, you're really big now, and that's scary. And so we need to to take back control. To your to your yeah. point. Oh, so when they're doing this, um, when you're sort of when you do this, you have a series of different choices that you can make. You can look at traditional legislation, and you can say, well, maybe we should strengthen consumer legislation, or maybe we should, you know, look at if there is further reforms needed in data protection law. Mm. But what was the choice here instead was to to create this new act, and as you pointed out, it's. It is not a nimble piece of legislation. <laughs> Why? Well, I mean, there's the Christmas tree effect, which happens with all legislation, but I think particularly it's a feature of EU legislation, I'd say because of the long cycles, the long legislative cycles. So, so yes, the core of the legislation is to roll over a lot of the e-commerce directive. And to be fair, you know, a lot of provisions are saying, look, you will continue to get uh, protection from liability. And, and particularly if you're, we'll go into the definitions, but if you're a mere conduit or a caching service, actually life continues to be pretty similar um, from before. If you're a big online platform, life's going to be very different from before. But it does roll over those intermediate liability provisions. That's the core of it. But what's happened as it's gone through the legislative process is the Christmas tree effect, which is things have happened in the world people have had new concerns and like hanging a new bauble on the Christmas tree, people have wanted to hang it on this legislation because it was the only show in town. And, and yes, there are measures that logically would be much better suited in other areas. For example, there's some very specific provisions around online advertising, restricting the way in which you can target online advertising. You know, that, that feels to me like squarely a data protection issue, but the GDPR ship had sailed, <laughs> that settled, and this one is in progress. So even though it's really got nothing to do with content and intermediary liability, they've shoved that in there. 
there's, there's rules around what they call dark patterns, which is uh, slang, but you know, when you're offering people pop-up boxes and you give them choices, are you unfairly directing them to some choices over others? Again, really nothing to do with content intermediary liability, much more logically in consumer legislation, but there's no consumer legislation going through. So pop that in here as well. So there's a bit of that Christmas tree effect going on. Actually, some of the, the things that are most talked about now are those baubles and not the tree itself. <laughs> so there's more commentary about banning targeted advertising and dark patterns and things like that than there is in many cases around intermediary liability, which, which can be a more boring technical subject. And, and it, I mean, it is interesting because to some degree, you could argue that the quality of legislation is a really important issue. Mm-hmm. And quality of legislation has to do with how stringent you are about putting things in the right act so that the necessary trade-offs and the balancing uh, legislative acts you need to do are sort of within the same framework. Uh, here, you're going to have to interpret the DSA under both consumer law and the GDPR and other legislation as well. Is the complexity... Um, uh, a worry here? Yeah, maybe. So there are lots of like places in the legislation where it says, you know, uh, uh, references all these other legal instruments and says notwithstanding or, you know, without prejudice to. Um, I mean, that's going to be an issue that will come up in the courts, uh, I suspect. So again, you hope that the drafts people in the European uh, institutions have figured all this out and they're not going to put something in here that's fundamentally inconsistent with another piece of EU law and they have a process where they, they do that. But you can imagine some of these issues ultimately being tested in in court or or just there being inconsistencies, actually, for somebody, you know, uh, an entity that's trying to comply with them, where they look at one definition in one piece of law and they try and square that with a definition in another piece of law or it gets interpreted differently. Uh, Just to give an example here, one of the, the definitions they've used is to say you can't use targeted advertising based on sensitive characteristics. That's a concept from data protection law. So when when someone tries to enforce this, are we confident that the definition of sensitive characteristics, which which is open to interpretation, uh, um, is that definition you know going to be consistent between this and any court cases brought under GDPR that, that are looking at the same issue? So it's things like that that have got to be squared out. Obviously, if it's all in one instrument, you you. Well, you hope it's confident. <laughs> you hope you can be confident that it's all going to be around a consistent set of definitions. When it's across different instruments, there's this risk of differential interpretation. And there's also a trade-off always, I think, between the, the communicative um, function of a piece of legislation and its um, mechanisms, the mechanisms you choose. So an interesting example in the new legislation is this notion of a tiered legislation where where you have um, the legislation applies to everyone, but it applies a little bit more to some. And those some are defined, they're defined by size. So you have very large online platforms and very large online search engines. Now, talk a little bit about that and why not just use a proportionality principle, which you could have done. We could have just say that you have, you have to show um, do care, uh, given your size and ability. And that would have been pretty yeah. much it. So, so there's some tiering according to functionality. Yeah. Uh, and then so, so just, just to get set the, the basics of people, there's, uh, you can be what's defined as a mere conduit. You, you operate right. a telecoms network and stuff goes through it, but you have no visibility. And, and there, you, you're actually not required to do very much. You get pretty much full liability. Then you can be a caching provider uh, where you cache content. And there, there are some obligations on you to say, look, 
uh, you're not responsible for the content, but if the content is removed upstream or downstream, the, the original content is removed as a caching provider, you've got to clear it out. So you don't want someone to remove a bunch of illegal content <laughs> and then for it still to be accessible in the caching provider. Then you move on from that to a hosting provider, which would be like a, a web hosting provider where your offer Amazon Web Services allows people to host their websites. Again, they typically don't have much insight into what's going on in those websites, but if they were told that it was an illegal website, at that point, having that knowledge, they'd have to take some kind of action. Then you move on to, to the some platforms, the classic platforms, where we're thinking now about social media type platforms, where they do actually have much more micro visibility into uh, the content that's being posted. They'll have a set of rules, uh, terms of service, all of that. They've got another set of obligations. Then we get to the very uh, large online platforms, VLOPs. The VLOPs. VLOPs, which is... Rolls off the top. Which is, is the <laughs> online platform. Yeah. So it's the same idea, but then just a whole set of extra, very explicit obligations. And then I think they, late in the day, they carved out search engines separately, didn't they, into very large mm. search engines. which Online are, search engines. Online search engines, which I think is looking again a little bit over what was happening in the UK with the online safety bill, where they created that bifurcation between search and and, uh, and um, uh, sort of social media type platforms. Um, so there is a logic. There's a sort of logic to different uh, requirements for different functionality, but I agree with you, the logic for different requirements according to size alone seems odd to me. You could have requirements but scale them and say, you know, you must all do a risk assessment. Uh, but if you're a five-person startup, your risk assessment could be two sheets of A4 <laughs> that you've done, you know, and, and you've checked everything, but you've done something. You've not just ignored the fact there might be risks. If you're a very large platform, then your risk assessment is going to, you know, cost hundreds of thousands of euros and involve teams of dozens of people micro inspecting everything that's going on your platform. So you, it could be, you know, you're all required to do risk assessment, but the amount of work is proportionate to the size of your business rather than the sort of tiering where, the, yeah, there's just this, you go over a step. And now there's a whole different set of obligations. Yeah. I'm coming back to this question of what sentiment this legislation was crafted in, because I, I think that there, there has to have been a political value in being able to say, look, it's in the text. We are regulating the very large online platforms, the very large online search engines. So there is there is certainly a signaling value here. And I think one way of reading the legislation is actually to read it for those political signals as well as for the legislative consequences. Because I think that this is certainly, almost certainly not going to be the last word uh, from the commission. What do you think? No, I, I agree. And actually, if you look at the companion legislation, this Digital Markets Act, that has this notion of a gatekeeper, which again is sort of defined in the same way. So context where, look, if, if we did not have a market in Europe that where the largest services used by most of the people were in the hands of a small number of largely US-based companies, I think we would see different legislation. The legislation is there in response to a landscape that's involved where power appears to be concentrated in the hands of a small number of companies. And the assumption has been that that power is enduring unless we take legal instruments to kind of break it down. Now, that's a really interesting question because certainly I think you see in the market with new entrants coming in, 
uh, and the one that everyone talks about, I think quite rightly, is TikTok sort of coming in and stealing people's lunch. Uh, if you're <laughs> in the old online um, platforms business, there are other people coming in. It feels at the moment like there are more challenges. There are, there are I was looking today, there are like, it's quite a long tail now of multi-billion dollar uh, platforms that are getting multi-billion dollars of advertising revenue online. I mean, Meta and Alphabet are still at the top of the tree, but there's plenty of others sort of rowing in, also fighting for those advertising dollars. So the market seems to be shifting, but I think the underlying assumption underpinning both DMA and DSA is almost that you know this sort of uh, oligopoly was enduring, and therefore we must bake into our legislation the idea that we're going to have special requirements on on a group of specially big companies that are going to stay specially big. Mm-hmm. And this is this is also a really interesting feature of the legislation from a macro perspective. It is it is legislation that assumes stability and equilibrium to your point. Yes. And in that sense, it is not surprising that you will find elements, and when we talk about the specific um, provisions, we'll find elements that remind you very much of, for example, pharma legislation or banking legislation. Just to take one example, this notion of know your business customer, where yeah. you, you have to have the ability to allow customers to contact businesses on your platform, etc. That's pure, it's like really picked out of the financial regulator's handbook. So, so this is legislation. We had the beginning the European uh, the e-commerce directive in the year 2000 that said, "Ooh, a nascent industry. We must make sure that it grows." And now legislation that says it has grown enough, it's reached equilibrium, which is a really interesting hypothesis, and we should regulate that equilibrium. But when that happens in any other sector, you cement the oligopoly. These are the companies that are going to be um, in this market, and that's okay with us as long as they have the right regulatory framework. Is this this a hidden, not discussed intent behind the legislation, or a side effect. I, I don't think it's the intent to make a side effect. And one of the issues that I um, worry about it is that through the regulatory instruments, we may be creating a situation in which intermediaries are even more attractive. So a, a, regula- a well-regulated intermediary that's met all the legal requirements that are now imposed, it, it's much safer for you as a small business to go through that intermediary than to go your own way. And so again, just think of the e-commerce director. Like that had some contact requirements. You must have you must have contact details on your website. I mean, it was on a really basic. Yes. So in, in old e-commerce land, if I was setting up a e-commerce business, the requirements were quite light. Uh, I could just get out there and trade. Now, yes, there are exemptions for micro and small businesses, but still the, the risk of being seen to be non-compliant, that there are going to be complaints about you, that you're not going to be able to... Uh, handle those complaints coming through, it feels to me that to sort of effectively outsource all of that worry by saying, look, I'm not going to launch my own website. I'm not going to launch my own e-commerce platform. I'll go through Amazon. I'll just sign up to Amazon's marketplace or or Etsy's marketplace or whatever. It just, it, it, I mean, that trend's already there. Yeah. And I worry that it essentially may cement that trend. And you've also shifted the bargaining power, right? Because if you go on Amazon's platform, then suddenly uh, you have all the rights that are afforded you under this legislation and the DMA. So the bargaining power in the situation between the individual customer and the platform is such that the individual customer now has even more incentive to go to that platform because they know that they can rely on the protections in the legislation. That's right. So yeah, and and similarly for the content um, sector, so that that would be sort of e-commerce players. If you're a content provider, again, 
you know, the, the concern is as we get much more enforcement against individual websites and things, well, look, if I, you know, if I uh, put some content on my website and it turns out it was illegal uh, and I missed it because I'm only doing this one day a week, then I could be in big trouble and I'm going to be really nervous about that. If I push my content out through an online platform, one of the advantages, frankly, is look, they are now going to have to be monitoring all the time. They're going to take it down uh, if there's a problem with it. The, the intermediate liability sort of, you know, helps me there. Oh, and and yes, to your point again, uh, under DSA, my rights against that platform have been dramatically increased. My bargaining power my is bargaining so power. much stronger. Right? I mean, if it all plays out as it should. Yeah. So why the hell build your own website? <laughs> you know, why not just use one of these regulated platforms, these intermediaries? So, that, so the strength of the intermediary potentially, or the attractiveness of the intermediary increases. So to wrap this up, there is a, another aspect of this, which is that if you are one of these large online platforms or large online search engines, you're going to have to engage in building a very robust compliance structure. That's going to create a lot of cost. And if you're a rational actor, you're going to look at how can I turn this cost into a competitive advantage, right? Exactly. That's, that's how you're going to think about this. And banks facing fintechs right now have this concept that I find quite fascinating, which is compliance as a service. Yes. And so this is something else that you could expect will happen beyond the threshold of the 45 million monthly active users, right? That, that will see uh, compliance turned into a service and so creating a tiering in the market uh, as well, right? Yeah, the, the expectations may be there. Interestingly, you, you know, again, banking is an interesting example. If you set a gold standard for banking, even if you permit people to operate at a lower standard, the gold standard banks are going to use the fact their gold standards to, to get a competitive advantage uh, in the marketplace. So you can imagine here, even if you've got the tiering structure, Look at one example, um, you know, the very large uh, platforms are going to be required to keep a record of all adverts and store them in a library. And well, well, now, if that becomes the norm, even if you're a smaller advertising provider, you're not required to do it. You may feel the pressure on you because people are going to say, well, why aren't you meeting the gold standard that these guys have met? Yeah. Just in the same way in financial services, people are going to be a little bit more suspicious of somebody who's not meeting the standard the banks have to, even if they say, look, I don't need to. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the unregulated bit. Ooh, the unregulated bit's the unattractive bit, you know. Uh, and so there is a risk, again, of that 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 standard setting, whether, whether the platforms explicitly themselves feed that idea, look at us, we're gold standard, or whether it just grows in the marketplace. There definitely could be a, a perverse effect, which is that the, the platform the very large, the standards that are only supposed to be applied to the very large platforms, everyone else is under pressure to do something similar. Yeah, and you don't have to be, I mean, you don't have to be very conspiratorial to end up with that conclusion because it is rational for any actor that is subjected to compliance costs to figure out if there is a way to turn those costs into competitive advantage. Yeah, right? yeah. 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 Okay, interesting. So that, those are some of the macro aspects mm. of the legislation. We can now dive into oh. the legislation itself, which is exciting. So. So um, let's let's start talking about this idea of a notice and action regime. Yeah. What is that? So, so there's been a bit of a so, so again, um, we should we should flag at the beginning that there is a huge difference, very very fundamental difference between the European Union's idea of uh, what we call intermediary liability, which is which is already exemption from liability. So so what the European Union says is, look, you as a, an intermediary as an online service 
you can't be held liable for illegal content going over your service uh, under certain conditions, but it's conditional. And one of the core conditions in the EU model is that you don't have actual knowledge of the illegality. As soon as you're made aware that the content is illegal, it's not certain you'll have liability, but you are now at risk. So you've been made aware of it. Across the threshold. Across the threshold. Now, how actually liable you are depends on how, you know, on the underlying laws. Do the underlying laws say that the intermediary can be held liable? So something like defamation, typically they can. If you're a publishing platform or even a newspaper and you carry libelous content, you can, but for other laws, not. Anyway, this thing kicks in potential legal liability. Section 230 in the US is much, much more blanket. It says you can't be held liable, like full stop. And so it's a much stronger protection in the US. Yeah. Um, and that actually does Also work. under debate, we should note. Yeah. Under debate in the US, whereas they say here it's conditional. So notice and action is, is trying to regularize the process. So if, if we've accepted the EU now for more than 20 years that we're only granting this exemption from liability conditional on you not having actual knowledge, uh, um, having having had that in place for 20 years, we still weren't clear what actual knowledge meant. <laughs> and so there's been a lot of, sort of debate about what that means. And so what they're trying to do in the legislation, which I think is actually helpful, and it'll be helpful for everyone, is to try and standardise in true EU fashion and regularise what it means to give somebody notice with, with some basic stuff like you should say who you are. <laughs> you should say where the content is identified as a URL. Uh, uh, a location on the web, all these sort of basic things. So it's trying to really standardize that process. Uh, and the benefit is for everybody is look, as, as a complainant, you go through a standard process. Once you've lodged your complaint, the platform can't say, I didn't know about it because they've had a standard notice. From a platform point of view, the benefit is you've had a standard notice. So you know what to act on as opposed to getting We've seen it in our times of sort of random email to somebody at the company saying, Oi, mate, you've got some illegal content in here somewhere. Uh, you Sorted. Know. Yes. Yeah. Are you on notice or not when you have that? And that, you know, now it will be much more standardized. And it comes also with the duty to put together the mechanisms through which that notice can be given, right? That's right. Yeah. So you will, as a, as a platform, have to do that. And again, we should be really good for the very large platforms. They mostly have some mechanisms, but I think they have tended not to want to receive legal notices. And so they have, you know, we should be candid, the design impetus is to try and make it difficult or obscure for someone to file a legal notice, because in the classic model, ignorance is bliss. As long as they don't know about it, I can't be held liable. If I make it really easy for you to tell me about stuff, I am increasing my liability. Now I've got 10,000 potential items of illegal content rather than a thousand because I've made it easy. But again, the legislation will standardize that and say, look, you, you, you know, you must, and there's a whole set of criteria. So that the, the thing that runs throughout the entire, uh, this regulation and the online safety bill and many other measures, uh, the network enforcement act in Germany is, is essentially governments telling businesses how they have to set all these things up rather than just relying on them to, do it themselves. Uh, it's saying, you know, you must do it, uh, A, B, C, D, and E steps. And if you don't, you'll be in breach of this regulation. And and these um, wonderful people, the digital services coordinators, which we'll talk about, this yes. new powerful Your beast, yes. can come along and look at your reporting thing and say, that's not good enough. It doesn't meet the requirements. 
you're not allowing people to give notice, I'm going to order you to redesign it. And that's something that, you know, wasn't there before, before uh, the, the terms were much vaguer. And that's where all this extra text comes in. And again, very reminiscent of financial regulation. Yeah. The same reporting duties, the same notion of, of, you know, you have to be good enough and we want to be able to investigate it. And also the same notion of we're going to tell you exactly how to do this risk assessment or whatever it is. And so, so the notice and action regime, um, when you take action, uh, there's also this idea that you have to give a statement of reasons. Yeah. How how will this work in practice and what does it mean? Yeah, that's going to be fun. And so just, just one note we should pass on that, that. We now call it notice and action. In the old days, we used to call it notice and takedown. And that was a copyright term. Right? Yeah. Notice and takedown. And, yes. and the assumption was you were giving notice to get something taken down. And we used to use that sort of, I think, more generally as a term. And then people came to realize, no, no, what you're... What you're insisting is that the platform does something, takes an action, and the action may be, I've looked at your complaints and and I disagree with it, and I'm going to do nothing. Yeah. But the action you took was at least to review. But you have to take you the have action. You to do something. Yes. You can't just ignore it. You have to do something. And the more lax model that was uh, flying around as well was notice and notice, which is I tell you you have something and you tell the person to put it up. Exactly. Exactly. Which is what the platform sort of originally would, I think, have preferred, where the liability clearly stays with the post. But anyway, so we're with notice and action. And then if you have taken an action, uh, well, uh, in, in any case, whether, whether or not you've taken contact now or left it up, there is an expectation in the legislation that you must respond to the person and the person can challenge your decision. So whatever decision you took, you have to send that back to the, to the, the complaint. Let's break that down. So uh, I assume we're speaking of, uh, it's not sort of one or two a month that we're talking no. about. It's going to be quite a big volume. So our uh, template statements or reasons going to be okay? Uh, so, so again, there's sort of framing around the extent to which you can use automation, the extent to which you have to do human review. But I think certainly in terms of the responses, the initial responses, that's the only way it's going to work. Yes. Uh, and so again, this is this is the stuff where the the digital service coordinators or the European Commission, when it comes to the large platforms, are going to have to sit down and have really grown up conversations with the services about what's reasonable. Once you start to understand the scale at which you're working. Uh, um, I mean, you could cripple a business. The, 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 all of the measures here together could cripple a business. They could make it so that, you know, every time an individual is a little bit annoyed about something on the platform, it sparks off a process which is going to end up costing tens of thousands of euros. If you look at all these measures, that they've got to have an individual do the review, type the response, send the response, deal with the with the uh, uh, appeal, then go off to another dispute resolution process, and so on and so on. And if you scale up, you know, 10,000 euros a complaint times 10 million complaints, you have some very, very big numbers. Like it's not going to be viable to run a service. Or they could say, look, we want there to be a good service, but yes, for most of those complaints, a, a you know automated response saying, uh, I mean, the text may be automated. Someone's looked at the complaint and they sent a response back and just pushed a button and that cost 10 cents. Uh, that that may be sufficient. And so they're going to have to settle on where they want to be because when, when you look at the text of the regulation, you could end up you know, across quite a broad spectrum in terms of the expectations on platforms. So so let's let's play this out a little bit because this is interesting. You can imagine, um, so say I'm, I'm hosting a platform, I, uh, I get somebody gets me notice and I decide to not explore the notice closer but just take the content down because... Yeah. That's the action I'm going to take. The reason for this being that 
uh, I have zero interest in any liability that I could accrue over time. Mm-hmm. And the statement I'm going to go back with to the person who required this is say, yes, when in doubt, we take things down and yeah. just take it down. Uh, is that permissible under the rules? I mean, you, you, if you went back, you, know, you have to get your framing right. But, but so somebody says, I think this content should come down. You go back and say, say under my terms of service, I, I have taken it down. And the terms of service can essentially be, I want nothing that harms my reputation. Uh, and there's, well, the, the, there's other measures around terms of service, but broadly speaking, but that person is unlikely to complain. The person who got what they wanted is going to go, fine, job done. But then you're going to have to send a notice to the person whose content you've taken down, and there you're going to have to explain why you took it down. And that person can challenge you. So, so the issue you've got, and we've played this out of time, is like, which one are you going to disappoint? The complainant or the content owner? And and depending, you know, I think for the person who you're agreeing with, you can have a much more uh, cursory communication. You're right. I agree. Thank you very much. Like very low risk. The person that you're disagreeing with, you're going to have to, or you, you you're much more vulnerable than than to them challenging and to having to explain what you did. And of course, everything that you communicated can be used in evidence against you. So if you if you uh, send to that person a sort of inadequate response, like, I took your content down because I just didn't like it, uh, and you send it to them, they're going to go running off potentially to a dispute resolution service who's going to look at that and go, that's not good enough. It doesn't meet the terms of the DSA, and now I'm going to go back to the platform. And- but this is the question I want to ask, I think, and, and it, is, it is about the need for it to be a considered decision. Yes. Let's say let's say that I do, let's do a variation of this. So yeah. what I do is I set a limit. Uh, when I have gotten 10 notice and action, notice, mm-hmm. uh, notices about a piece of content, uh, I take the action of taking it down. I let the person who complains say, we're taking it down because a lot of other people also complained. I send a note to the person who put the content up and said, you have now passed the bar of more than 10 notices yeah. uh, against uh, your content. And so we no longer believe that it's defensible under our risk assessment to keep it up because a lot of people don't like what you've done. And I take it down. Yeah. Is there a duty within the DSA framework to have spent time on whether or not this was the right or wrong decision or is there only a duty to comply with your own terms of services and the rest of, of the mechanism and process outlined mm-hmm. in the DSA? So one of the late additions that people were, were um, quite pleased about were, were, were references to the fundamental rights, European fundamental rights, including fundamental right to freedom of expression. So one of the things that, again, will have to be tested, I don't think we're clear yet, is is precisely that kind of question. So, so if I had a set of terms of service that said, I take down content when I receive uh, X number of complaints, and again, a big part of this is requiring transparency. Yeah. yeah. And so, so you could say, I've been perfectly transparent. If I get X number of complaints, I take the content down. I don't consider the value of the content. It's purely numerical. Somebody may then then come back and test that and say, I think that's inconsistent with the provisions in the DSA where it references people's fundamental rights. So your terms of service are invalid when when considering people's fundamental rights. And so again, all of these things will play against each other. This is, is the heart of the online safety bill as well, where you say, we want freedom of expression, but we want to protect people from bad stuff. <laughs> and those two, you know, they are in tension with each other. Those two sort of objectives are in tension with each other. Um, and it's only through looking at specific examples that we can really 
tease out how that tension should be resolved. Uh, um, again, I think, honestly, one of the biggest risk areas is that the interpretation ends up of this legislation ends up being that the only satisfactory way of reviewing content is, is an expensive way, uh, one that requires humans to spend a lot of time looking at content. You know, that actually I think is probably one of the biggest risk areas for the platforms um, because that can be, you know, orders of magnitude of expense more than, than is reasonable. And, and that I, know, I say that knowing the volumes of complaints coming in and knowing the way that people, you know, will, will uh, play with reporting systems, they'll gain reporting systems, they'll try and achieve objectives. And one area you look at is, you know, when you look at the provisions around alternative dispute resolution, you can look at that and go, well, that's, you know, could all be done reasonably. It could also be done in a way where, frankly, it's all about milking the companies. You know, we create a factory where we get complaints in. We know the company is going to make bad decisions. We we uh, submit all of those complaints at scale. When the when the dispute resolution mechanism finds in our favour, we're able to claim our expenses back. Yippee! You know, a uh, hundred euros a, a pop for filing thousands thousands of complaints. There will be people who think of that. It's a valid business model. <laughs> it's not. Yes, a, it's not. Yes. A, it's, that's how how it works. And so, I think it, you know that question of how much expense is going to be put into reviewing is a critical one, and and the test of whether or not something is sufficient will be made by the commission and by these digital services coordinators, and then ultimately might be something that rolls up to the European Court of Justice because someone thinks that. The digital service coordinator is not demanding enough of the company and their fundamental rights are not being respected and bang, off it goes. So in terms of second order effects, one of the things that will play out in the courts and will be really interesting to understand is if implicit in the notice in action and statement of reasons model is also almost a kind of universal service obligation that you have to put this stuff up, you have to only take it down if it violates these particular rules, etc. The, because the one thing I'm trying to get at here, which I'm interested in, is, is, this, is does this mean that the space for shaping your own terms and conditions, your own uh, sort of user agreement, has shrunk enormously because of the reference to fundamental rights? Uh, I mean, I don't think explicitly. So again, if you look at the text of the DSA, it's still saying you can have your terms. It says they must be clear and explicable, and if they're aimed at children, they must be even clearer. And it, so it's, it's it's saying you must explain what you're doing continually, and you must be very transparent about what you're doing. It doesn't say you can't do things. And actually, I think the the UK equivalent, the Online Safety Bill, is more explicitly says we've got these, you know, political and journalistic and other uh, freedom of expression tests. But it, I think it's implicit actually in all EU legislation because all of it can be tested against the uh, fundamental rights. And these sort of these additional uh, places where they put that language in give people scope at least to test it. But I don't think and it's only not explicitly on the face of it. You can't say, you know, companies can't have their own terms of service because that breaches my fundamental rights. It's not as explicit as that. But you can imagine people when they're annoyed and they think someone's being. Uh, uh, unfair to them will want to challenge on that basis. Will it also force us to rethink what those fundamental rights are? Because the fundamental right of freedom of expression is not the right to express yourself on any particular uh, internet service. No, no. So exactly. So it doesn't. It doesn't say that. But again, I think um, this is where this very large thing comes in. There is an assumption underpinning quite a lot of this that 
certainly when it comes to very large platforms, they they I think it was wrong that they, people equate them with the whole internet. Therefore, if I'm deprived of access to a very large platform, it's like being deprived of access to the internet altogether. Therefore, you know, the fundamental right uh, to freedom of expression kicks in much more strongly. I, I personally disagree with that. We've talked about it. I, I think, you know, being restricted from accessing the internet is is essentially different from being a, a, a restricted from accessing an individual platform. But there's a whole bunch of people who who feel differently, who who would say large platforms should, all, should be treated like public property, like public bodies. Yes, and that will essentially now, that's a question that is hiding in the second and third order effects of the application of the DSA at this point. It will be, yes, because say as of today, you know, the terms of service you want, how you handle complaints, what kind of reasoning you give to people, all of that is pretty much up to the companies uh, to deal with. And there's no sort of legislative locus for challenging that. You now will have one. There's a piece of EU law. It's it sort of created all these requirements on, on uh, the services. You can test against that piece of EU law, and then you can further test EU law against the fundamental rights, as you can with any other piece of EU legislation. And we've seen that happen. It'll take a few years, but... Those are second or third order effects. So we see an intermingling of public and private law in a really interesting way. And another way in which we see that is that there are some people uh, who have a special power when it comes to giving up this. Who yes. are they? Oh, the trusted flaggers. So yes. Again, isn't it interesting just as um, it is one of those things where you and I have both been in, in working groups and conversations around that. It, it's a, a, actually a, a kind of convenience for the tech companies. If we look at the history of it, yeah. that... Um, as the internet companies were growing, the, the content-based internet companies, they often they were looking at ways to make it easier to do content moderation. And one of the ways that you did that was to work with people, people often who were your critics. Yeah. So you would find an NGO that was really worried about hate speech on the platform, and the win-win was you'd say to the NGO, look, we'll give you... And then and suddenly when I started doing it, it was literally the email address of somebody in the company. <laughs> and you email them when you see some bad content. And it's better for us as a platform because we found the bad content because we trust you. You have they also had a content. really good ability to discern, I think. Yeah, they, they yeah. had the ability to identify well, well, well. what the, the yeah. limits were, right? Exactly. So a really good trusted flagger. They were like an external partner, and it was good for them. Their core objective is getting rid of hate speech. Uh, so they feel good because they've got a hotline to you, and they can do their daily job of getting rid of hate speech. And your daily job is to try and keep the platform. Uh, uh, within the terms of service and do it as cheaply as possible. And frankly, it was a lot cheaper, more effective to take reports from these people. So that model And even group, fund them in some cases. And even fund them, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so it's interesting. Are the, so the trusted flaggers in the DSA, are they trusted by the same actors as the trusted flaggers originally were? So the, or who is trusting the flaggers now? Yeah, so it's not, so again, it's our friends, the, the digital services coordinators and, and um, parts of the Europe, of the institution, the European institution that can set these up. So, so they're now, I think they are uh, making this more of a public thing. And I was involved in lots of discussions where you could see people's eyes lighting up. There's a lot of stuff around hate speech that we did with Commissioner Europa some, some time back and there was a code of conduct and hate speech and trusted flaggers got into the system then. They've, they've liked the model and said, well, that's a good model, but now we, the public authority, will decide who is a trusted flagger. Once we've determined that somebody is a trusted flagger, so we'll work with NGOs, and they've got criteria in the legislation saying they must be independent and high quality, et cetera, et cetera, 
once we've decided that they are trusted flagger, platforms must act on their reports as a matter of priority. And again, it's a potential area of tension if the platforms disagree, and I think they will be able to challenge it. But if, if the platforms think that somebody's been appointed as a trusted flagger who's not very good, um, that is a potential point of, of tension between them. And again, I have to say, in my experience, most of the trusted flaggers were excellent. Yeah. But sometimes you'd find a rogue one. You'd find somebody you gave the email address to and the stuff they were sending you was not the right stuff. They were on their own mission. Sometimes it was trusted flag that was really good, but then often very small organizations get taken over by somebody else. The agenda changes. So, so it's not unrealistic. I say most trusted flaggers absolutely will be in it for the right reasons. Hopefully these criteria will mean that they are all good, but I can again imagine in this space some potential points of tension. Where... And, and it's the public that trusts these flaggers, and then the companies have to trust them too. The companies can object to them, but again, they don't have to approve them. I, no, they're not. So the trusted flaggers appointed by the by the public authorities. So say for the sake of argument that um, there was a country within the European Union that had an authoritarian bent. Yeah. And they decide to appoint a number of trusted flaggers who are very close to the government and uh, start flagging content that is yeah. borderline, but almost all the content that's being flagged is critical of the government. Yeah. What recourse do you have as a platform at that point? Yeah, I think, I mean, again, there are safeguards in there, I think, or the, the Commission would argue, or the European institution would argue, there are safeguards in there that that could be challenged, that they're going to have this structure, we, we talk much about the structure, the structure of these sort of competent authorities and these digital services coordinators at national level, and then they all roll up into digital services board. And then there's a big role for the European Commission in there. So my work assumption is, look, if, if that was happening, then the platform who, who is getting all these reports who disagrees would go to one of these structures. Uh, who, who all are supposed to be independent, by the way. <laughs> so they would, they would go, and if the digital services coordinator was not independent enough of the government and they were approving these people, you would challenge that maybe to the board and maybe to the commission. So you would, you would have to go in and say, I think this is broken. I think they are in breach of the legislation because they are not meeting the criteria or acting independently, and then you'd have to trust I think ultimately the commission to step in and, and sort it out. It puts a lot of responsibility on the platforms though, because they are then the ones who have to look at the quality for what's coming in yeah. and to see if it's relevant and to see that it's not skewed, etc. Because if you're doing the lazy thing and you just say, okay, I'm just going to go with all of the trusted flaggers and remove what they say, because that's the simplest thing. And again, it creates the lowest compliance cost. Then there is no burden on the commission to go look that these trusted flaggers are doing the right thing and that they're not being used for purposes. I think they also have to do their own reporting and there is some transparency there on them. But you're right, from a platform point of view, I think it'd be quite a high bar for you to challenge it Yeah, because it's not in your interest. And again, it depends. In all of this, I think we've got to remember as well, platforms do have values themselves. They do. And a, and a platform you know, is going to want to comply. I think any major company is is not going to want to be out of compliance. But there are limits. And the limit would be the scenario I think you described. If they thought that a trusted flagger had been, was partisan, politically partisan, had been corrupted in some way, had been appointed inappropriately, in those unlikely circumstances, I think that's the kind of point at which you're challenged. If you just thought, look, you know, they're, they're just a little bit off in their judgments <laughs> uh, or they're a bit annoying or, they, you know, the volumes are wrong or whatever, if there's just some, something kind of like 
less serious, I think a platform would probably put up with it. But something like political bias, there'd be enough people inside the platform who would say, you know, we can't accept this. This is this is so fundamentally wrong that we need to then go and challenge it with the relevant authorities. And, and that's interesting because often when we talk about the DSA, we talk about the, the need to comply and the compliance structure, etc. But there's also a certain need for vigilance to sort of see that the outcomes of the legislation are actually the envisioned outcomes. And uh, some of that, at least, is going to rest with the platforms as they as they look at what the implementation is. Yeah, I mean, the transparency works in all directions. So I think that's, that is an important point, that the platforms... I mean, the, the platforms themselves will be transparent about what they're doing, and in some ways you'll be able to unpick from that what they were being asked to do by these different authorities. There's, there is transparency built into all of the different pieces of it. And then, of course, we can rely on the fact that, um, I think in the in the sort of final set of provisions, it says they can review the effectiveness of the regulation in five years' time. So mm. the Commission will mark its own homework, or the European institutions will mark their own homework after five years and tell us how successful it's been. That's good. Um, so, so let's talk about another mechanism that i think is quite interesting we, we talked a little bit about the the right to complain we talk about those different things but then there's also um risk assessment and transparency report yeah so um what is this yeah so the risk assessment and, and i've said this about the online safety bill that is the single i think most uh potentially beneficial piece of the legislation uh in terms of actually advancing the agenda. I think, you know, platforms do this internally. They are very good at understanding their systems. That's what they do, daily bread and butter stuff. And sometimes those risk assessments get leaked and and it becomes a headline story. But I think it's really good that platforms do do risk assessments. I, I think it's unfortunate that often the legislation previously has discouraged them from doing that because ignorance is bliss. Yeah. And so, you know, if, if you're worried about the fact you've got underage kids on your platform, actually the best thing from a legal liability point of view is not to go looking for them. Uh, uh, The best thing from a risk assessment point of view is to go looking for them. And if you find them, uh, understand what's going on and what the specific areas of risk are. So I think having risk assessments and having them happen as a a sort of interactive process between platforms and their regulators is potentially hugely positive if it can be done in the right um, trust environment. And again, this interactive trust environment for me is essential. A risk assessment where where you're, you know, effectively the regulator is trying to catch you out uh, is a bad exercise. And then you're, again, incentivized to talk down the risks as much as possible. Whereas what you want is to be as honest as possible and for it to be as honest as possible, you need that trust relationship between regulator and regulated where they can talk about it together and try and figure out what to do about it together. And I know some people are horrified by that. They ask the regulator getting too close to the companies. But there are other examples. Financial regulation, again, is another one where I think when it works well, it works well precisely because the financial institutions are not hiding things. They're coming to the regulator and the regulation incentivizes them to say, I think I found some money laundering. Can we talk about it? As opposed to, oh, crikey, I've got money laundering. I better not say anything. You know. So it's that you need, you want to have regulation that encourages people to, to, to come with the problems they've got in those risk assessments and then work with the regulator to agree an action plan to address them. And if it works, the, 
the sort of ultimate prize is that this then moves from the front page of the newspaper to the investor relations page of the website of the of the company in question because now it's a standard a certification it's a part of general auditing because obviously the way you do your risk assessment and transparency reporting will then also have to be looked at by your auditors because it presents a potential risk to the company too, right? That's so right. A lot of auditors are going to like this. Yeah, and 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 the, and there are provisions for you again the large platforms to do audit as well. So explicit audit of their risk assessments and their actions that they took in response to them. And then you're right, your regular company audit and your company reporting. These are very powerful tools. We sometimes forget people, you know, make assumptions that public companies will behave in a very cavalier fashion when they can't. I mean, they, they have to report sort of systemic risks and things. And if you look at their reporting history of like American companies, it will say, you know, uh, the Digital Markets Act is likely to have this impact on us or yeah. the GDPR will have that impact on us. Um, so they have to be public and, and responsive on these things. And this is, this is the forward responsibility because yeah. what happens at this point is that it's about the company being well run and governed in a way that's consistent with the standards we have for for corporate governance generally, right? Exactly. Yes, and and, and that is surprisingly powerful. Here, yeah, right? yeah. Uh, so, um, so how how is all of this going to be enforced? You've yeah. spoken about these mysterious service <laughs> coordinators and the board and the commission. Who does what if something doesn't work? Is there a, is there an escalation path? Uh, does the commission have a unique? Yes. Remit for some of this stuff. I think the the commission has a reserve with a certain chunk of course right. for themselves. Right? So, so I think they've they've learned from data protection regulation, or and again whether or not this proves to be better, I don't know. It's the jury is out. But they 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 created originally a model that looks quite like the data protection model, where you essentially have sort of competencies at a national level, and the national level being where a business is established. Or if a business is outside the EU, then all businesses, all platforms are going to be required to appoint a legal representative in the EU. So the competent authority will be where that legal representative is. But there were a lot of complaints that have been raised about this kind of structure in the context of data protection regulation, because it's left the Irish Data Protection Authority in charge of many of the large uh, services that are hosted in Ireland. Uh, I will put on the record my actually admiration for the Irish Data Protection Authority. I think you get a very bad yes. press from other people complaining, but my experience of dealing with them is that they're a serious bunch of people with a lot of resources. Yes. They take it seriously. The Irish government puts the resources in there, and they're actually better resourced than most data protection agencies around Europe. But whatever, I think the, the, the people in the legislative process felt that wasn't sufficient, and they were worried that a small... Compton Authority would deal with people. So now the status quo is, look, if you're a, a kind of, you know, middle-sized platform, not one of these big ones, and you're established in Poland or Hungary or Greece or wherever, your regulator, primary regulator, will be somebody who's appointed in that country. They're the person who's responsible for you. They will then uh, take part in a, a European-wide structure, a board, so that if, for example, you, you know there are complaints from three or four different countries about your service because you're operating in several countries, they might get escalated there. This is very much like the data protection model. But if you're one of these VLOPs, these, the, the big guys, um, the, a change, a significant change they made as the legislation went through is to say, nope, they're going to be regulated directly by the commission. 
oh, and by the way, the commission is now going to take powers to make these people give the commission money in order to carry out the regulation. Again, I think that's something they have rolled over from the online safety bill in the UK, this idea that we're going to raise a levy, use that levy to hire people, commission staff, and those commission staff will directly oversee the large platforms. Uh, there is a model there in competition law, which they're also drawing on, where, where competition law can be exercised by the EU-level competition authority or by national authorities. Arguably, this is, this is um, it, I don't want to exaggerate this, but it feels like uh, an expansion of federalism in the European Union system. Absolutely. It's, kind of, it's, it's a recognition that you have a, an EU-wide service that, the, that no national body is competent to deal with that. Uh, so it's almost actually, is that the opposite of federalism? It's not, it's not I mean, the old model was, was yes, federated in the sense that we would trust a state to regulate somebody. Right. And now we're saying we no longer trust a state, it's a centralizing It's a centralizing function. function. Uh, so the European Union's power is growing by an order of magnitude here when it comes uh, to what they're doing. Right? I think it's extraordinary. If you look at all the other structures they've had, um, let's say for data protection, for regulation of um, telecoms companies, for example, the, the, the classic European model is something that begins with E and ends with B or, or A if it's an agency, board or agency or something, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a European group of uh, Xs and there's one from every member state and they come together. That is the classic federal model. Um, yes. And they resolve, resolve issues there. I say the exception that is longstanding is competition law where, where a case could be kicked up to the European level and there it is being dealt with by uh, a, a European authority as opposed to a collection of member state authorities. But I don't think that's happened in something like this previously. I'm not aware of it happening in, in this kind of area. And it comes with the right to fine the companies under the right. direct jurisdiction of the commission as well. Right? Yeah, yeah. So that so there's essentially they sort of mirror. There's a whole set of uh, uh, powers that member states must give to their competent body. The member states must make sure their competent body can issue fines, issue directions, powers of inspection, powers of on-site inspection and investigation, powers to require. Uh, platforms to give up data to researchers, very, very significant range of powers. And then essentially the European Commission says, and we'll have those powers, thank you very much for the big lots of the big guys. So there's a whole set of powers they've taken on themselves that will be exercised at national level for smaller entities and uh, by the Commission for the 45 million plus entities. Mm. That's quite a significant shift. And it, it does sort of ask, it, it makes me ask the question of, the role of the European Commission and as both the initiative uh, taker for legislation and now the regulator. So it suggests that the implementation phase that now starts and all of the work that needs to be done to get this in place is going to be one long negotiation for especially the large companies with the European Commission. And that's what's, what they should be thinking about in the next three to five years. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot to sort of, and again, just this sort of a basic question of how you create this independent regulatory body that is seen to be sufficiently independent within the European Commission structures uh, and yeah, how that's done, who's in charge of that, what kind of tone they set. There's a lot of, of um, 
sort of latitude for them to interpret the regulation in different ways. There's, there's a whole set of delegated acts that still have to be drafted and come in. There's going to be lots of codes of conduct and they can also and change the legislation in multiple ways. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that that is going to be um, a critical discussion. So I think from a platform point of view, you're going to have if you're if you're a small platform, you know, that I think there might be quite variable enforcement across the EU. Because candidly, there are like different capabilities. If you take a country like France, which is, you know, the countries that were champing at the bit to regulate platforms more, originally were countries like France and Germany. Uh, France tried to pass a thing called Avia Law, and uh, Germany's already passed the, the Network Enforcement Act. They're going to sort of jump all over the people who are within their competence. There'll be other EU member states that are, you know, have to build this up. And then there's the European Commission, where they, they've had a long history of engaging with the companies, but more at the policy level rather than at the enforcement level. And they're now going to have to switch mode from policy to enforcement, or they're going to hire a different group of people, or I, I don't know how they're going to set this structure up exactly, but there's going to be some kind of independent regulatory function created within a body that traditionally has been the same, much more around policy engagement and negotiation. So there is an interesting nuance here. What you're saying suggests to me that that rather than the companies just looking at the legislation and saying, oh, this is what is required to comply, what they should be expecting is that they're now entering a phase of perpetual enforcement. Yes. That's what they need to figure out. And they need to think about how they negotiate that perpetual enforcement together with an entirely new regulator that has the powers that it used to have in the competition space, but in a, I think to a large degree, a new area, yeah. a new domain. And to, and to give you a, a, an unhappy example of how this has played out, if we think about transatlantic data transfers, actually, I think they are quite instructive where, you know, the commission has been negotiating successive agreements to try and enable transatlantic data, uh, data transfers to take place. And people have challenged that and the courts have been striking them down. And then the commission has gone back and negotiated again. So you have a piece of legislation, GDPR, or previously, the reflection directive now GDPR, you have the commission trying to interpret it and come up with, with uh, compliant mechanisms. And then you have court cases that strike it down, it has to be renegotiated. Perpetual negotiation over what constitutes uh, uh, the conditions for a legitimate transfer. I think we can expect the same here. It, uh, in a sense, it'll be perpetual negotiation where commission might agree with platforms that a particular form of risk assessment and audit is fine, and someone may come along and challenge that, and it's and it's ongoing. So the commission will be pulled in different directions by platforms saying, we think this is sufficient, and potentially by other in involved parties saying, no, we need you to impose this on the platforms. Mm. So let's zoom back out to some big picture questions then to conclude. Um, the first question I have is, I want you to imagine that you're five years in the future and for reasons unknown, you're now employed by the European Commission and you're drafting the three questions that will evaluate if the DSA was a success or not to the review board. What do you ask the review board to look at? Yeah, so I, I actually think um, what we don't do enough of is to ask consumers in the round, uh, in, in the language of the, of the DSA, they're called recipients, recipients of services, not users yes. or consumers, but um, they're asking people what their experience is like and testing how that has changed over time and seeing whether you can relate changes, whether things have got better or worse 
back to the legislature. There's a real risk in this area that we listen to those who shout loudest, uh, who may not be typical. So I think the real, and, and there's a risk in any evaluation, that's what you do. So what we need to know is for the bulk of users, uh, and we need, we need ways of testing that, there are ways, surveys, you know, do they feel that when they report content, they now get a better experience? Do they feel they see less illegal content? Uh, do people who post content feel that their content is less frequently taken down incorrectly and when it does, that the challenge works for them? And you've got to do that at scale for ordinary recipients of the service, not just the 50 people who are really annoyed because it didn't work. Uh, you know, that, 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 that isn't the real test. So that should be put in place now. So you have a baseline, right? Panel, yeah. The, 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 one of the studies I always admire, and I know you, you would have seen as well, was the EU Kids Online study, where you went back to kids across the EU every year uh, and surveyed them to try and understand what their experience was online, where were they experiencing problems and so on. So it's not exactly that, but it's that kind of model where you have a panel of people you're able to go back, you're able to understand what their experience is and then to crucially see if you can make any linkage between their experience and the regulatory measures that you put in place. Mm. So that's one way of evaluating if the DSA mm. was a success. What would be one thing that you feel would signal that it was a failure? I, I think there are two areas where it could be a failure. So um, one is uh, if it does lead to this sort of... Uh, a game playing scenario where you know people now see these mechanisms they the, the, essentially we divert all the effort into uh, um, dealing with invalid complaints there's some mechanism there that's supposed to deal with that but people sort of gaming the system to use dispute mechanisms for financial gain or or just to troll other people there's sort of there's a whole bunch of game playing that can could take place within this framework so that would be a sign of failure that we're not we've just diverted a load of resources into you know uh, uh, negative rather than positive improvements and i think the second is this this question of um, sort of concentration in the market that, that if we do actually make it harder in spite of everything that's in there if we make it so that people feel more nervous about innovating and creating new innovative uh, services uh, that it's much safer just to, to just all congregate around the intermediaries because of compliance concerns that would be the other thing would you also look at things like how many people participate in a, in an online debate, for example? So if you if you have uh, large online forums, uh, or if they disappear into closed WhatsApp groups, or is there something about the nature of public debate that would be interesting yeah. to think about? I think that's a much harder thing to, to measure um, the quality of public debate. I mean, but actually, that's one thing where again, I think it needs innovation. I think what we've proven is that you know, large public forums. Once public forums get to a certain scale, they break down. They cease to be useful. And nobody's really come up with better models. And actually, one of the areas where we need innovation is is better models for creating debating spaces. Public deliberation online. Public yes. deliberation online. And again, one of the big concerns uh, uh, I'd have about this, all this regulation is, does it make it more or less likely that some bright entrepreneur somewhere is going to come up with the debating space and grow it and make it really successful. So the last thing is a few test statements where you get to say true yeah. or false. Oh. First, the fines from the DSA will be larger in the three years following its coming into force than the competition fines 
during these three years? I think false. Okay. They'll take, they'll take longer. I think they'll take longer to, because they'll be, so as you've got three year time horizon, over time they may, they, they may uh, exceed that. But I actually think it's going to take, there's going to be a lot of process of people challenging the fines till we get to understand what the right level is. So there's always a headline number, uh, you know, X percent of, of revenue, but that's a max. And what is, what is a fair number if you fail to do three of the things on your risk assessment action plan? So that's going to take us some time, and we've seen some big numbers in competition. There is a provision that gives legal standing to, for example, consumer associations mm. within the DSA. So the next statement is we will see at least five lawsuits initiated by consumer associations in the next three years. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and they're often, I mean, kind of because we've seen a lot in the last few years, just over things like terms of service. Um, and they're often got funding for it, and, and, and actually it can be you know, incentivized to do it as a consumer association, that's your bread and butter, why wouldn't you? Um, and and it can be financially quite beneficial to get a settlement that way. It also There is also provision within the DSA for companies to come up with codes of conduct. Yeah. So here's a statement for you. There will be less than three codes of conduct in place uh, under the DSA after the three first years. No. I actually think codes of conduct is one of the areas that that there will be a lot of push around. Uh, and again, just the rationale for that is, look, a lot of this stuff is really hard <laughs> to, to try and define, you know, what what good looks like in terms of hate speech enforcement or misinformation enforcement. The codes of conduct are really helpful to everybody. Uh, so I think they will. There's one for advertising, I think. There's, there's, I think those, those codes of conduct will prove to be a really effective mechanism. And in the perpetual enforcement dialogue, that's going to be absolutely the best way to set up an industry position, right? Exactly, exactly. It's just, you know, it's working reasonably well. I think the misinformation one we were both involved in, you know, it's not perfect, it's got its critics, but it, it created a dialogue, it created some sense of momentum, it brought people in. Uh, there was something you could disagree with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is exactly. Um, and uh, here's, here's another one for you. 80% of the very large online platforms or the very large online search engines will be non-European. Uh, yes, I think that continues to be the case. As designated by the commission under the DSA. Yeah. So more than 80% of the VLOPs and the VLOAC will be Do I think that will continue to be the case? Designated under the... Yeah, under I, th the I think so. I don't think... I, there's a few, uh, I'm thinking European companies... Daily Motion, for example, I'm wondering if they're at the 45 million and there's a few others, but, but uh, um, I, yeah, I, I don't know, but my working assumption is it will be, vast majority will be outside the EU. That raises an interesting question that we will not be able to answer, but that is that if 80% of the actual scope for the European uh, Commission's new um, uh, competence here hits outside of the European Union, you could argue that that is a trade issue. Yes, and uh, we may well see that play out. The risk reports and risk assessments uh, that you were supposed to compile um, come with no actual cost assessment uh, within the impact assessment. But uh, I'm going to give you um, a suggestion that risk reports under the DSA will cost more than one million a year for very large online platforms and very large online search engines. Absolutely, I think they're going to be really expensive exercises. One of the big questions for all of the people passing regulation like this at the moment is the extent to which they want to have interoperable systems or systems at variance. So 
in theory, if you've done the risk assessment for child safety, there's probably not going to be any significant difference between that risk assessment for France or the UK or Germany or Singapore or India or wherever else. If regulators in each country are willing to accept broadly the same framework with a few tweaks, then that million is going to go a lot further and people will do a really comprehensive exercise spread it around. One of the concerns I have is that people will say, no, no, mine has to be a little bit different and mine has to be a little bit different. And then you're just going to incur more costs, not necessarily for more benefit. So it is going to be expensive. And I actually think there's public interest in, in making them as interoperable as possible. Great. Well, with that, then, I think that we will conclude this 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 Halloween session oh, on yes. the DSA. And uh, as it comes, uh, as it's published tomorrow, uh, you can find this podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. Well, thank you for listening and uh, tune in soon again.